from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about potential changes to Milwaukee's zoning process that the city says will help keep housing affordable. We want every Milwaukeean to have a quality and affordable home by 2050. Um, And what zoning can help do is it can help increase the styles and types of housing people are living in. Then we'll learn how you can cut down your own Christmas tree in a Wisconsin forest. This has been going on for decades. For some families, it's a long generational tradition to go out to a state forest and gather their own Christmas tree. We'll share some of the tools for how to recognize and cope with elevated levels of stress during the holidays. Plus, explore the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Zoning and land use regulation can be a dense topic, but what our city looks and feels like is heavily influenced by zoning. As a part of its long-term plans for the city, the Milwaukee Department of City Development's growing MKE initiative is recommending changes to the city's zoning process to encourage gradually building more housing and make the city more walkable. Sam Leikling is the city planning manager for Milwaukee's Department of City Development. He sits down with Lake Effect Sam Woods to discuss why his department is recommending these changes. Sam, a lot of this interview will focus on changes to the city's zoning process to encourage building more housing uh, in the long-term future. Uh, But before we get into that, can you take us a step back to talk about what zoning is and how it's been used over the years? Yeah, great. Thanks for the question. Um, Zoning is obviously a topic that people, I think, often know the term, but maybe don't know exactly what it means. So it's a good opportunity to talk about um, how zoning originated and how it affects how our cities are shaped. Um, Like a lot of other cities across the country, zoning came to Milwaukee in the 1920s. Uh, Zoning serves as the rules for what can get built on a given property. It regulates things like how tall a building can be, um, how close to the street it has to be, and what kind of uses can happen there. You know, one of the reasons zoning was enacted was because, you know, people wanted to separate um, homes from noxious industrial uses. And that was one of the founding reasons for zoning. Um, over time, zoning codes have gotten more complicated, started to regulate more and more things. And in some jurisdictions, zoning has occasionally been used to exclude uh, people. And that's started a national discussion around what zoning should look like in the future, especially as we um, want to ensure that our zoning codes align with our goals for housing growth, housing choice, housing development. Um, and housing affordability. Keeping it at a very high level, can you talk about what the changes uh, to the city's zoning process that your department is looking for? And and I'm also interested in, like, is, is there a problem that you're trying to solve with these changes and, and how do they address it? So we don't necessarily look at things as problems, we look at them as opportunities. And I think right now we have a unique opportunity to advance a lot of um, concurrent goals that we have as a city. One is we want to ensure that we have uh, housing choice that meets the changing needs of Milwaukee. As you know, as Milwaukeeans um, continue to evolve, as you know, as our population continues to evolve and hopefully grow, and we want to make sure that the housing choices in our city meet the needs of that population. We want to make sure we're providing housing for intergenerational families, housing for people at a wide um, wherever they are in life, and also um, at a variety of price points. And we we believe 
that one of the ways we can do that is make changes to the zoning code to allow for a wider variety of types and styles of housing in a wider variety of neighborhoods. And that aligns with our goals for growth. It also aligns with some of our goals for climate equity. The city recently adopted a climate equity plan that talked about uh, an overall goal of reducing vehicle miles traveled and work and how a how our um, development patterns impact that. And we know that the zoning code impacts our development patterns and we wanna make sure that we have development patterns that continue to um, advance those goals and allow people to more easily walk, take transit and bike through their neighborhoods. We also know that um, Milwaukeeans across the city consistently tell us that one of the things they wanna see in their neighborhoods is walkable amenities. People who wanna be able to walk to parks, walk to schools, walk to shop, walk to worship. And we believe that um, increasing the types and styles of housing that can be developed across the city can help achieve those goals. And finally, of course, um, housing affordability is on the tip of everyone's tongue. And we know that by expanding the types and styles of housing that can be built in a wider variety of neighborhoods, you also have the impact um, and ability to create um, housing options and choice that might um, be available at a wider variety in, of, of price points for neighbors across the city. Is it fair to say that the big overarching goal of these zoning changes that you're looking for is to get ahead of population growth uh, that we may see in the future in the city and make sure that there's enough housing so that if we do see people moving to Milwaukee, say, you know, climate refugees from the Southwest or kind of the South moving to Milwaukee, that there's still enough housing stock to accommodate people who are moving here as well as people who are living here currently. Yeah, the name of the initiative is Growing MKE. So obviously growth is one of the things we're considering. And you said it exactly right, which is we want to make sure that as the city's population grows, and obviously Mayor Johnson um, has set some ambitious goals to grow the population of our city, knowing that that can bring additional vibrancy, additional economic opportunity. It supports the fiscal sustainability of the city. Um, we know that as the population grows, we want to make sure that we have housing choices to accommodate that growing population. We've seen across the country um, in cities that have not allowed for housing growth, the impact that can have on existing residents. Um, in cities that have seen population growth and haven't allowed for housing um, development to accommodate that, you've seen displacement pressure, you've seen rising housing costs. Um, and we wanna make sure that we're getting ahead of that in Milwaukee by ensuring that our zoning and housing development frameworks accommodate and encourage that kind of growth and do it in a way that advance our other goals for walkable urban neighborhoods, climate change mitigation, uh, equity and affordability. Bringing it down from that high level, can you talk about the uh, the specific recommendations that you're looking for? I, I know one of them is making it easier to build triplexes, quadplexes, kind of two to four units of housing on a parcel that is currently zoned for single family. But I know there's more to the recommendations than just that. Yeah, you know, one of the examples is uh, the recommended updates to the code would allow for things like accessory dwelling units across the city. So accessory dwelling units mean, um, you know, a rear, a cottage house or a garage apartment, some of the types of things that historically Milwaukee has had in many city neighborhoods, but um, currently are difficult or impossible to uh, construct under our code. And so we hear from a lot of residents that as they look at both wanting to um, perhaps have intergenerational families living in one property, or have in-law, um, you know, aging parents return and live on the same parcel that, you know, they want a housing styles that accommodate that. And so accessory dwelling units are one way to do that. Um, or like you said, you know, we are, we're a city of duplexes and in many city neighborhoods, you see duplexes, single family homes, all coexisting. And so, yeah, the, the recommendation is 
that's something that you already see throughout the city. We want it to be something that's permitted uh, in every city neighborhood so that people have those housing choices that allow for that um, more diverse mix of housing styles and also accommodate um, that type of uh, family, you know, familial situation of families who want to um, age together, have intergenerational living, add a second unit to their existing home to allow for family to move in, things like that. I'm curious of what parts, because this is, you know, you're not proposing like an overhaul of the of the zoning zoning code or anything. It's kind of more like smaller smaller tweaks. I'm curious what about the zoning process is not going to change. Yeah, during the growing MKE process, we're not proposing any type of widespread changes to the city's zoning map. You know, the zoning map is the part of the zoning code that divides the city into districts. You know, multifamily district, business district, single family, and two family district. Um, we're not proposing to change individual properties and move them in between, you know, for example, like a house or a block that has been zoned for one and two family homes. Now they're suddenly zoned for uh, multifamily high rise buildings. What we are proposing to do is make changes to every zoning district in the city that would allow slightly more housing. Um, We want there to be more choices in every zoning district within the city. And it's the term that you hear a lot there is gradual density. We want to, um, you know, allow for that gradual increase, whether it's on a vacant lot, Um, you know, as far as what can be built there to allow for that gradual density that will increase the amount of choice and diversity of housing styles throughout the city. So I I know for me, you know, discussions when it comes to zoning very quickly get in the weeds and kind of I get lost in in the details. And so I know for me, it helps with thinking about, uh, you know, a hypothetical. So I'm going to I'm going to give you give you one to to speak on. So let's say it's 2050. Um, how has Milwaukee changed as a result of these zoning process changes that you're um, looking for? Um, understanding that, you know, there's a lot that goes into how a city changes over, you know, almost 30 years. But as, as much as you can, try to paint us a picture of, you know, it's 2050. What does Milwaukee look like because of these changes? Well, we have some ambitious goals for what the city should look like in 2050, and those come from a few places. One of the things that kind of drives a lot of our work at the city is the city's collective affordable housing plan um, that was developed by the Community Development Alliance in 2021. And that plan sets a goal that every Milwaukeean should have a quality, affordable home. And we think that through a variety of policy changes, not just zoning code updates, but also other work in housing, that we can achieve that goal. We want every Milwaukeean to have a quality and affordable home by 2050. Um, And what zoning can help do is it can help increase the styles and types of housing people are living in. And it can also um, help ensure that the form of our city achieves our other goals for walkable urban neighborhoods, um, transit access. And so if you ask about what what kind of neighborhoods we'd like to see in 2020 and 2050, a lot of them are the kind of neighborhoods you already see in the city now. We're blessed with a ton of great neighborhoods and we want to see that type of neighborhood development continue to flourish where by 2050, um, you, you see neighborhoods throughout the city where people um, have those quality, affordable housing options, no matter where in life you are, no matter where in the income spectrum you are, and that you can walk, you know, you can walk to meet a lot of your daily needs. You can walk to shop, you can walk to worship, walk to a park, and um, that you have access to transit in your neighborhood. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's at the end of the day, what we want for our city is just a really walkable, vibrant neighborhoods with a diversity of housing styles and choices, because we know we know that a lack of housing diversity within neighborhoods has negative impacts. It has negative impacts on affordability, walkability, diversity, and climate impacts. And what we want to do is use this process of the growing MKE process, the future zoning code updates, to set a development framework 
that allows for that type of continued vibrant neighborhood development where we have these walkable urban neighborhoods with a diverse mix of housing styles um, that allow for people to meet a lot of their daily needs in their neighborhood. You've mentioned a couple in a couple of these answers uh, the connection between these zoning changes and uh, the city's uh, climate plan. Can you talk more about the connection between the changes that you're looking for um, and the city's long-term climate plans? Yeah, one of the other growing MKE recommendations is to increase the amount of homes that we are encouraging allowing along our transit lines, which often are um, mirror our commercial corridors. The growing MKE calls for um, encouraging higher density mixed use development along our transit or, or along our transit corridors. And one of the things that that does is it provides um, access to more people to more transit options, which connects them to job opportunities. And um, ultimately that type of development has multiple benefits. One is it gives more people housing options near transit, which allows them to potentially, if they choose, live without a car or live with less cars and you know share between a household. Um, it also puts people uh, close to our um, commercial corridors, which has the added benefit of bringing new residents to support local businesses, keeps the commercial corridors vibrant, and supports our overall walkable urban development goal. And ultimately, these types of development um, patterns we can reduce the reliance on single automobile, single passenger automobile trips, which supports the climate equity plan's goals of reducing the average vehicle miles traveled per person. So it's not saying that people won't still have cars. Of course, people are going to uh, many people are going to choose to have cars. What it means is that you'll be able to access more of your daily trips without driving. Um, and people who want to, you know, utilize transit or bicycle uh, more often will have those choices. And it's all about providing those choices. Um, and we think that the types of zoning code updates that are recommended by Growing MK will expand those choices for people. They will support our commercial corridors. They will make our neighborhoods more walkable and vibrant. Um, and that ultimately has significant impacts on climate, and it also has significant impact on pedestrian safety, which is another one of our um, mayor's, you know, really core goals is how do we make our streets safer and more walkable for Milwaukee residents? Well, we know that density and walkable neighborhoods have a direct impact on traffic safety. And so all these things kind of um, align, and that's why we're really excited to carry out the Growing MK initiative. Gotcha. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me on Lake Effect. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Sam Leikling is the City Planning Manager for Milwaukee's Department of City Development. He spoke with Lake Effect's Sam Woods. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Holidays can be a stressful time of year. Later in the show, we'll learn about some helpful tools, including the concept of leisure stress coping. Really, at the end of the day, we really want, we want to optimize what you already enjoy doing so that we can build that into its own daily stress management intervention rather than trying to train you up on something that's outside of your mantra of daily social rhythm. But first, we'll learn how public forests can be a part of your holiday traditions. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Christmas tree farms aren't the only place you can get a real tree this season. People can cut down their very own at many of northern Wisconsin's public forests. You just need to have a permit and follow a few rules. To learn more about the festive activity, Lake Effect's expert Nunez speaks with Teague Pritchard, the state forest specialist with the Wisconsin DNR. With the holidays around the corner, the State Department of Natural Resources is reminding people they can harvest their very own Christmas tree. What are some of the forests people can visit? Yeah, most of the Christmas tree gathering is in the northern part of the state, on the northern state forest. So Vilas County to Douglas County to Jackson County. So it's mostly in the northern half of the state. National Forest and Wisconsin has a very large county forest program. So all three public ownerships offer the opportunity for Christmas tree gathering. And this has been going on for decades. For some families, it's a long generational tradition to go out to a state forest and gather their own Christmas tree. That's so exciting. Can you describe some of the types of trees people tend to look for and where are the best spots to find them? Yeah, well, that's always the fun part. It's all about the experience and everybody has a different flavor of Christmas tree. My personal favorite is the balsam fir. I call it the classic Christmas tree. It's got the great smell, the short needles. Other folks like the pine species. They have a little bit longer needles, but it's to each and everyone's own individual preference on it. The best way to find a good Christmas tree is just reach out to the property manager of the forest that you're looking to go visit. They can give you some tips and tricks on locations, easy access, and it's a great way to interact with a DNR employee as well. Before taking a trip out north, where can people get their permits and how much do they cost? Yeah, permits, this is great. Permits are really reasonably priced. $5 for a permit will get you a Christmas tree. And you get the permit directly from the property that you're gonna visit. You can call ahead and they can issue it over the phone. You can stop into their office just to make sure their office hours are open when you're gonna be there. You get your permit and off you go. Okay, you're at the forest. What are some rules people should keep in mind before they pick out their perfect tree? Yeah, there are some rules or permit conditions. Um, You can't harvest a tree that's greater than 30 feet in height. You can't harvest it right along a roadside or a designated trail. And there are certain buffers around lakes. There's ample trees at that size class. So harvesting these trees have minimal, if any, effect on the forest. And really, it's an opportunity to get Wisconsin citizens out in the forest to enjoy their natural resources. And this is the best natural way to get a Christmas tree for your holidays. And we encourage folks to get out there and do it. Yeah. And you mentioned this earlier, but have you noticed this permit program become a popular activity or tradition for some people? It's kind of a hidden secret. If you haven't done it before or have a friend or family member that has done it, getting the word out is oftentimes the most challenging part. So interviews like this are a great way to let the citizens know where and how to do it and even that it's an opportunity to pursue. Well, hopefully people get out there soon. And to clarify again, this permit only allows people to cut down Christmas trees in northern Wisconsin, right? Why can't people cut from southern forests? Yeah, southern forests and state parks and wildlife properties, they're just smaller in size. 
So the impacts can be greater there. And there's really not as many good harvesting opportunities in the South. Most of the pines and the firs are in the Northern part of the state. Well, Teague, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about this fun holiday activity. You bet, thank you much. Teague Pritchard is the state forest specialist in Wisconsin's DNR Division of Forestry. He spoke with Lake Effects, Excret Nunez. Stress is a constant thing we all have to deal with, but we certainly can go through more of it during the holiday season as we juggle both work and a growing number of social engagements. To help us learn how to tame stress during not just this time of year, but year-round, I'm joined by Marcellus Merritt, Associate Professor of Psychology at UW-Milwaukee. He notes that having a healthy social support system is a good basic starting ground for everyone and starts by defining its key elements. When we talk about social support seeking, we're talking about getting help in terms of objective or instrumental support. So if you're out of money, uh, borrowing money from a friend or a family member, which is something that's more tangible. And then there's the kind of support seeking that's kind of more emotionally based so that when you've lost a partner or when you've lost your job or like during the pandemic, when you feel lonely and you feel depressed and down, um, then you may have that friend in life or that special person in life that you can kind of seek uh, counsel with and kind of really confide with and kind of you know, let them know what problems you're having and trust that they'll be able to kind of give you the emotional support that you need as well as well here. So then there are other forms of support that are a little more generic in terms of uh, just being a part of a large group or organization and kind of having that sense of belonging. Uh, like for example, with the social organization, that intangible sense of feeling like you're part of something, even when you're not physically with that group, if you will. So what we know in health psychology over thousands and thousands of published research is that when you have higher levels of those various kinds of social support, that you generally tend to be in a better mood, your mental health profile tends to be better, your physical health tends to be better as well too. So that when you have more social support, for example, you're generally less depressed or your port being less depressed. Um, you sleep better and during the day you're not as sleepy. And also as your support is consistent over time, your risk for chronic diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes and other medical conditions tends to be lower. So it seems like overall that Higher social support seems to be like a, a magic pill, if you will, where basically you can take that pill or more doses of that pill, and it tends to help prevent some of the issues that may be a concern in your personal health profile, if you will. There's also a notion of positive versus destructive sources of support. Can you touch on that a little more? Sure. So there's a simple premise that when you're in situations where you feel like you need that support or special kind of support, uh, you want to make sure you kind of uh, confide or seek tangible support or belongingness with entities that are actually good for your health in general. So if you take a young person like a, a middle school kid or a younger adolescent who's a part of a peer group that uh, engages in uh, dysfunctional coping strategies. So for example, substance use, illicit substance use, uh, or illicit sexual 
tendencies or habits, then obviously in that context, that kind of support isn't in the long run going to be good for that young person, right? So one of our goals is health psychologists in, in by extension clinical uh, support folks is to kind of educate uh, people of different backgrounds about ideal sources of support in terms of uh, healthy coping, in terms of uh, positive views of life, in terms of uh, religious sources of support and that kind of thing as well. So in that context, then we kind of provide what we refer to as coping resources to people in need. We're always careful about making sure that those individuals understand what healthy resources are versus what unhealthy resources or support may entail. There are more traditional methods of coping with stress, uh, and it's most often what's in the mainstream that are kind of put in our radar here, and most of them involve the term mindfulness. And while these activities can be helpful, of course, you say that the sustainability or the long-term practice of this is is kind of poor. Why is that? Well, this to me as a health psychologist is one of the more fascinating questions in my everyday work, because we know in popular culture, and this is really eked into our economy in terms of uh, managing life stress, especially holiday stressors, if you will. Well, you know, if you're having trouble during the holidays or if you're isolated or if you're feeling sad or that kind of thing, why don't you just uh, do some deep breathing or why don't you just do some meditation or 10 minute meditation? Or I know I have this app online that you can use that'll get you, you know, that'll get you right quote unquote there. So it's one of those things where, unfortunately, what, what you know with stress and stress coping is that it's not that simple, that each of us kind of has uh, what we refer to as a social rhythm, where basically we like to do certain things at certain times of the day in certain ways. And when those patterns are interrupted, uh, we don't tend to respond well in terms of our daily health and well-being. So therefore, hypothetically, if you as my provider ask me to do one of the more established meditation interventions out there, then that's going to kind of challenge you in terms of your daily ability to kind of do those exercises, but at the same time, maintain that quote unquote, usual social rhythm in your daily life there. So a lot of people, including myself, don't respond well to that. There are people who can adapt well to that because they have the disposition, the time, the capacity, in terms of their resources to engage in that activity, and that is perfectly fine. But for others who don't have those resources or time or interest, if you will, then there may be other resources, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, that may be more optimal in terms of maintaining their daily rhythm. Yeah, and to touch upon one of those, next up we have something called active coping with stress. Can you explain what this is? we talk about stress, a big part of stress is how you manage it, how you respond or cope with it. So one way people cope with stress is a process referred to as active coping, where very simply when you're when you're confronted with a certain demand, challenge, or issue, you deal with it by kind of trying to resolve it efficaciously or directly or actively, if you will. So. The premise of that in our, especially in our Western or American culture is that more active coping is seen as something that's kind of healthy. It's another magic pill, but it's not that simple. It's not a linear thing where basically you just get a pill and it's a dosage thing. We know, for example, that if you take a population of interest for me, family caregivers, 
who try to doggedly take on the role of caring for a sick family member alone, they're more likely to suffer more physical health side effects of trying to engage in that role alone as opposed to seeking uh, formal support resources along that way. So the gist there is basically that active coping or high effort coping is a vital organizational tool in our daily lives, but it's moderated by coping resources. In other words here, yes, I can respond and have grit, resilience, striving, and all those wonderful adjectives that we, we like to use in daily interventions. But if I don't have the adequate resources to optimize that effort in terms of money, time, support, access to good health care, and so forth, then that, act, that effort, that extra effort or active coping could actually speed up my aging and disease pathways as opposed to helping in a way. And that's kind of the yin, what I mean by the yin and the yang of active coping with stress. Just the idea that once you get on that active coping trajectory or, or lane or track, you want to make sure that you kind of have a solid foundation of coping resources so that when you, when you kind of help your family member or support your family member or, or optimize your job effort at work or try to optimize your marriage, if you will, that you can use those resources to really get the most out of that effort. You teach some courses at UW-Milwaukee, but you also conduct research, and your research involves the positive impact of leisure activities or leisure stress coping. So can you explain the premise of that? Sure. As I noted earlier, there are standard stress reduction interventions that are out there, but the problem with those interventions, although overall they, they tend to be effective within the context of the intervention itself, is that only like a fraction of patients or clients are going to keep engaging in those exercises once the formal intervention is over. So one of our goals as health psychologists is to figure out what you do in your daily life that's almost equivalent to that kind of intervention that's something that you already enjoy doing and that you would do no matter what I told you or if I told you to do it. So the premise of our research is that we want you to do more of that. And also we want to figure out why that activity is good for you, why it makes you feel good. So that once we answer the why question, which could be a function of things like mental absorption, like when I go out and hit, when I go out and play a round of golf, um, I'm so mentally absorbed in hitting that little white ball that I forget about everything else around my life in terms of my work stress, my relationship stress, and any other demands in my life. I'm just like in a zone focused on trying to hit that little white ball, which I'm doing better on, but still struggling with. Um, um, or or when you cook, which I do healthy cooking. When I, healthy, when I do healthy cooking, I'm magically in a better mood because I feel better about what I'm doing with my body in a way. So our goal is really overall to kind of figure out for each individual what their, what dimension of the leisure activity makes that activity optimal for their daily health and work on improving that dimension. And eventually, really at the end of the day, we really want, we want to optimize what you already enjoy doing so that we can build that into its own daily stress management intervention rather than trying to train you up on something that's outside of your, you know, mantra of daily social rhythm, if you will. Where do you think is a good place to start if someone is starting 
from ground zero as a way to put it. They don't have much experience. They've never been to a therapist before, but they, they recognize that they need to make some changes to help themselves. Sure. Probably a good thing to do, which is kind of what we're going to be doing with our next wave of, of preliminary research with this concept next year, is to do what's referred to as a diary-based approach. A lot of us do this already, right, where we have we do daily diaries, weekly di diaries. So figure out in your personal life those things that kind of work for you, that make you feel better, and kind of keep track of what works best, and maybe try to find ways to integrate those activities more in your life. The idea of stress, very simply, is that we, we don't escape stress. Stress doesn't close down. So the best we can do is just do things on a day-to-day -day basis that offset the perilous or residual effects of stress in a way. So the leisure activity, if you kind of try to figure out how to optimize and balance it with the rest of your life, is maybe a way to kind of get started. And it, it doesn't get rid of the stress, but at least in the short term, it doesn't let the stress accumulate. Because really the, the, the long-term side effects of stress, the, the parts of stress that really get you, that can kill you early, or what we refer to as chronic stress. So we just really would advise people just to think about what activities work for, for them and how they work and when they work. And once you kind of play around with that a little bit and get into a healthy rhythm, you'll be amazed about how your daily functioning, how your daily stress management can improve. Old Marcellus, thank you for joining me today and sharing some of these helpful tools. Great. Enjoy it. Marcellus Merritt is an associate professor of psychology at UW-Milwaukee. We spoke in December of last year. We'll take one more break and then return to explore the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's next on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Marvel movies have been dominating global screens for more than a decade. To date, of the 25 highest grossing films of all time, eight of them belong to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But what do these films say about our culture? And perhaps more importantly, what are these films teaching this global audience? A book called The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is exploring the cultural impact and, of course, the politics espoused in these films. Dr. Lily Gorn is an author and editor of the book, and she joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share more. So when you look at the major films made over the last couple decades, it's really astounding how many of them are from the cinematic universe, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How impactful are these films? What is interesting about the Marvel Cinematic Universe itself is the impact is substantial in terms of dollars and cents. 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe as an entity makes more money than about 35 countries in the world. Um, have gross domestic product. And so when you start thinking about sort of movies in those terms and how much they cost to make, and you're talking about a $300 million film to make, then it makes over a billion dollars in five days. Those numbers are kind of interesting to explore in terms of impact on people and sort of how the narratives worm their way into our thinking. I think sometimes we think about comic books and hero films as being for kids, but that's really not the case. We see kids go to these films. We, of course, see parents go to these films, but then everyone else in between. They're huge, and not just here in the United States, but internationally. When I think about these films, I don't necessarily relate them to politics, which, as I read the book, you know, seemed odd because so many of the books are dealing with things, albeit extraordinary, that in a normal setting would be handled in the political arena. What makes these films political? What are the attributes that are really about politics? Well, uh, again, you know, the the sort of basic narrative of a superhero movie or television show, you have some sort of villain who is basically attempting to destabilize or take over some place or some people. So that's a political move. That's, you know, kind of what we call imperialism. And then in the response comes from a superhero who tries to usually stop this sort of takeover and return the place or the people to a, quote, status quo situation. And one of the issues with superheroes is that they're not elected. They are powered by superpowers that they either got accidentally or that they were born with in some capacity. And they operate in a certain sense in a political space because they're protecting a people or a nation or a group in some way from some sort of threat. And so one of the issues around superheroes is that they are fundamentally vigilantes. And that, to me, is maybe why I don't always make the connection to politics. They seem inherently lawless. But as you dissect the films, that's not really the case. We do see these kinds of checks and balances in a way in these different spheres. There's a lot in the book. It would be hard to get into each kind of piece of it. What do you think would be most surprising for listeners about the ways in which these films engage in this political conversation? Well, I mean, I think the sort of largest section of the book that we found really interesting as the chapters were rolling in from the authors, of course, takes up a lot of different dimensions of what we would consider to be identity politics. And so we have a lot of exploration of tensions around gender and and sex and the lack of sort of representation also with regard to LGBTQ characters that are so prevalent in the comic books themselves. But there's also a lot of understanding of or thinking about superheroes as people who are disabled in a certain sense because they are abled differently. And so if you do have, you know, sort of all the power of the universe as Captain Marvel may have, 
that makes you able differently. So you are not necessarily disabled in a standard way of thinking about it, but you are also sort of hampered by your capacities to do things that normal people can, normal in quotes, people can do in their day-to-day lives. And then, of course, somebody like Tony Stark, who doesn't have sort of physical superpowers, but created his suit so that he has superpowers. And we have a number of authors who talk about sort of his trauma and how this is one of the things that spurs him forward to sort of superpower himself. So these are, again, these are sort of identity questions and understandings of representation, um, masculinity and femininity presentations. You know, those are one side of politics. I would say on the other side of politics is this question of, you know, how do you govern superheroes? You know, that was a really big part of phases one through three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe film series, you know, sort of having the Avengers and then having them make mistakes and having people who died as a result of the things that they did and then having an attempt at a kind of supra-national way of managing them and, of course, having superheroes not want to be managed by governmental institutions. It seems like when we look at that aspect of it in particular, the correlations become pretty clear. You go, oh, I have seen this play out in our real world. When people watch these films, and this is a hard question to to get to, are they making these connections either explicitly like understanding that or is there this kind of subconscious connection to our real world? Well, we are moving towards a second volume where we're actually going to survey individuals who have seen the films to ask them questions about some of these issues. So it's hard to get at that information without asking directly um, what people think that they are seeing and understanding when they, they see a film. But popular culture in general is conveying all kinds of narratives to us that we enjoy sort of watching in a spectacle on the big screen or we sit down in our living rooms and watch on television um, that are conveying all kinds of components of politics that we may not necessarily say, oh, that is political. But we are being immersed in a narrative that talks about things that is, in fact, engaging in a sort of political discourse that we will then sort of perhaps reflect on as we think about the film, think about the television show, talk about it with our friends, perhaps read about it online. Uh, And so all of those components, I think, are part of what popular culture and something like superheroic films and television shows convey to us. If you're just tuning in, this is Lake Effect. I'm speaking with Lily Gorin. She is one of the authors of The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, as someone who is a little divorced from the Marvel Cinematic Universe myself, I've seen some of the films, but, you know, I'm certainly not uh, a comic book reader. I will say I have always had the impression that these were films made for and by white men. As you go through the book, that becomes very clear that it is a much more complicated narrative in these films. And something that really surprised me was the information on who's watching these films, uh, the audience that 
is really engaging in this material. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this was a, a chapter in particular by Bethany Lacina, um, and it was really, really fascinating to read that the tickets that are bought, particularly um, by the population in the United States, are African-American ticket buyers, both men and women. And so that in comparison to uh, sort of white ticket buyers, the films in general, not and we're not talking just about Black Panther or Wakanda forever, but all of the Marvel cinematic films like Thor and um, Iron Man and so forth, that these have a real appeal to a diverse audience. And as a result of that, it, it is, again, like who is watching the films becomes very interesting in terms of also who's making the films. And this is, again, something that we've seen recently with the Oscars um, and the fact that there were no female directors who were nominated for an Academy Award this year, as in so many years, and that there are often very few black individuals, either African-American or from other countries who are nominated as directors or even writing credits and so forth. So that, you know, Oscar so white and production so white is still an issue. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has been sort of talking about pushing forward with more representation, more diversity, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, you've seen sort of a little bit more of that on television, where the the sort of ratings numbers aren't always as clear as the ticket sale numbers with regard to big box office hits or attempts at hits. And so I think that who the audience is, who the perceived audience is, by consumers in general, but also by the studio and also by its parent company, Disney, are keys to part of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is also trying to present as its brand. Going through the book, especially as someone who is a little on the outside of this, I, th I think the thing I was most struck by was hon honestly just the power of this universe to some extent, uh, the, the power it has giving people an emotional connection to these, you know, fictional characters, but also in shaping opinions, shaping views on right and wrong and, and how we want our world to play out, I guess, what, what we think is right for government controls, these, these things that really govern our lives. What do you think the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe looks like, given its audience, given its stated goals? Do we see this as a universe that continues on a, for lack of a better word, kind of progressive outlook of politics? Or do we think, given, you know, its masters to some extent, a large corporation and uh, the, the desire to make more and more money, do, do we think that could change? Well, my co-author, Nick Carnes, and I, also with Bethany Lacina, had a piece in the Washington Post around the time that Wakanda Forever came out that really focused in on this question of whether the MCU was too woke, because this was something that was coming up in some commentary about, you know, what the MCU was presenting, 
who the heroes were and what did they look like and what ultimately were the narratives that were components of not only Wakanda Forever, but you know some of the other films that have come out under phase four and moving into phase five. And so we've seen more diverse casts. We've seen stories that are positioned sort of less in the West and and to some degree more in the East. And of course, Wakanda Forever takes up a Meso-Aztec group who lives underwater. And then, of course, we have Wakanda, which is an African country that nobody knew existed for a very long time that, you know, is sort of very futuristic and incredibly wealthy and competent. And so you have these contrasting societies that we are looking at with our sort of westernized eyes. But part of what superhero films generally do is exercise a kind of conservative small c approach, which is to sort of keep what was good. And and so in that context, I think that there is, you know, Disney wants to make money. MCU wants to make money. So they very gingerly oftentimes step forward into realms that may be more controversial. And so the question, again, of representation of LGBTQ characters has been really kind of quiet, both in television and in film. And this is something that fans have been asking for and fans have kind of been demanding. And this is so prevalent in the comic books, but it hasn't quite been translated into big screen or even to the little screen. So that there is still some of the small C conservative narrative that is definitely embedded in what superheroes usually are doing. It'll be interesting to see how the MCU evolves. Lily, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you again, Joy. Dr. Lily Gorn is an author and editor of the book, The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Gorn is also a professor of political science at Carroll University, and she joined Lake Effect's Joy Powers in March. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll speak with the Wisconsin Policy Forum about their latest study that examines local teacher salaries and explores why the median pay has actually fallen over the last decade. We'll also have an extended interview that was featured in the latest bubbler talk about Milwaukee's Enders Park neighborhood. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.